Okay. Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Uh, it's a special day. We're, uh, we're going to eat together, which I love to eat. I love you guys, but I love to eat. Uh, and uh, we're going to eat after the service, have a family picnic. So uh, please stay. Even if this is your first time with us, we would love for you to stay and stick around and just uh, uh, enjoy some great food. I think some beautiful weather. And it's just something we love to do, being together and sharing uh, food around the table. So, um, and, and I didn't want to let this moment pass without saying a special thanks to Angie Wilkins. Is she in here? She may be out there getting it ready. Uh, but I don't see her. But if you see Angie Wilkins, she has been working really hard to help coordinate uh, today's meal uh, for us. So just give her a little uh, word of encouragement and thanks. Just really grateful for her and all her efforts. Um, so this morning, we're continuing in, uh, in our series. We've been in... Uh, going through this series called God's Very Heart, and uh, this is week seven, and so over the last seven weeks, really what we've said is we, we, want, we want to bring our hearts before God's heart. We, we want to really have this kind of, this heart level check-in uh, with the Lord and allow his heart as he draws near to us uh, to soften our hearts and to uh, maybe warm our hearts again for him and even bring healing uh, in our hearts. So that's been our prayer, and we need that. Uh, we need that when life is just regular old life, and even over the last 18 months, uh, we need it even more, uh, I think. Just, it's been a season of uh, confusion and frustration and so much divisiveness, and it's just been exhausting for our hearts. And so this is an opportunity for us to allow the Lord to minister to our hearts. So that's our prayer as we're going through this series. We need God's heart. <clears throat> Excuse me. We need uh, His heart. Uh, and so we've been talking about what his heart is like. What is God's heart like? And we've, we've kind of worked through this. We've talked about the fact that his heart is gentle and lowly, <clears throat> not rough and proud. We've talked about the fact that he's comforting. We've talked about the fact that he has this righteous anger, the things that anger God are uh, the things that threaten that which he loves. And so we've talked about his anger. We've talked about his mercy, his steadfast heart last week, uh, that he's utterly committed to his love for us. Uh, next week, as we end our series, we're going to talk about, uh, in particular and more practically, how his heart heals our heart. We're talking about God's healing heart. Um, but this morning, <clears throat> I want us to focus on uh, one more particular aspect of God's heart. And it really is the part of God's heart that's under all these other things that we've talked about. It's, you might say it's the motive under the motives uh, of God's heart. I love how Jonathan Edwards said, uh, said it's, it's what's in God's heart that's like this fountain out of which all the other affections flow. And what is that thing? It's God's love. It's his love. And so this morning we're gonna talk about God's loving heart. Uh, we've been singing about it and worshiping this God of love and singing his praise. And so we wanna draw near to him. So that's my prayer this morning uh, as we look at his word together that he would help us to know his heart of love uh, for us. So I invite you uh, to go ahead and grab your Bible. Um, if you need a Bible, there's probably one in the seat back near you. Uh, just open it up. We're going to be in those verses that we read, that David read for us in Exodus chapter 34. So you want to start finding that. Um, as we talk about love, as you're turning there, just a, a couple of quick thoughts before we get started about love. I think um, you know, we're asking God to help us understand his love, his heart of love. And I think we need help understanding his heart of love, and in particular, love itself, because I think we get really confused about love uh, in our world, in part because we're human, 
but I think, especially in our cultural moment, it's easy for us to kind of get turned around. We, we throw the word love around a lot. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, you hear things like, all, all you need is love, or uh, love wins, um, or, uh, you know, uh, what's the other, love not hate, you know, or how can love be wrong? You know, hear these things that people say about love. And, and then, you know, I was just thinking about things that I say uh, when it comes to love. You know, I, that, that I love cheeseburgers, right? Or I love my family, uh, or I love the Astros, Ghostros. You know I had to work it in there somewhere. Uh, we love God, right? So we use love in all these different, different ways. And we mean very different things uh, when we talk about love in all these different ways. And so uh, I think we need to kind of drill down on what are we saying when we're talking about God's love. And it's helpful, I think, to think uh, about how people have thought about love in the past. In fact, the ancient Greeks had uh, an awareness of this complexity of love, this idea of love. They had several words for love. We have one word. They had at least four words. So they would talk about eros, which was kind of romantic love. They would talk about uh, phylos, which was friendship love, the love of a brother, Philadelphia, right? They, storge, they would talk about uh, affection for family or kind of familiar love. They would talk about agape, Many of us have heard of agape love, this, this idea that love is um, characterized by the sacrificial pursuit of another's well-being. And so as we try to understand God's love, what we want to do is be careful uh, to define it. Otherwise, I think if we're not careful, it can kind of end up meaning everything, uh, which really ends up meaning nothing. And I think that happens a lot in our culture right now when we talk about love. So we're going to talk uh, about God's loving heart. And as we consider it, um, I want to ask us to avoid at least two pitfalls. The first pitfall we want to avoid is we want to be really careful, as careful as we can, not to let our ideas of love cause us to misunderstand what God's word is revealing about his love. Um, as followers of Jesus, what we want to do, and this is just a general practice, right? We want to draw our understanding from the Bible as opposed to bringing our viewpoints or what we already think or believe about something and kind of importing it in the Bible. So I have this idea of love. This is what love is. This is what it means to me. This is based on my experience. And now every time I read the word love in the Bible, that's what it means, that we want to avoid that, that tendency. So that's one pitfall. The second, and, and, and I think I've, I've given into this, pitfall uh, more than I think I've realized. But the second pitfall, I think, is this, is that often, uh, I think, especially as followers of Jesus, we can fall into this trap of thinking we have to save love from selfishness in our culture, that we have to save love from selfishness. And the way we do that is we create this ideal of love that we hold out that is exclusively about sacrifice and self-denial. Because we see all the selfishness and love around us. And so we, we press on the sacrifice and self-denial. And God's love is self-giving, absolutely. But it's not divorced, right, from joy and from pleasure and from satisfaction. And so I think we just want to be really careful that we don't kind of throw the baby with the bathwater there. So two, two pitfalls. And so that I think that kind of sets the table for us to come to Exodus 34. And so if you want to look uh, in your Bible, uh, I want to look at this passage in particular because I think it gives us a window into the divine love of God. 
uh, to the story of God's relationship with his people Israel. Uh, and, and in particular, it'll, I think it'll help us avoid kind of the, another trap of just getting too philosophical about love. This is love in the context of this covenant relationship. So in Exodus 34, some context for what's going on here. Uh, so in Exodus 32, if you were to go back, what you'd find is that Moses has gone to the top of Mount Sinai. And he and God are meeting, and, and basically they're finalizing the terms of the relationship that God is going to have with his people Israel. And, and what happens while Moses and, and, and God are having this conversation is the people are at the base of the mountain and they rebel. They rebel against the Lord. And how they do that is they seek out another God. They give up on God. They seek out this other God. They make an idol. And this is a famous story. And make an idol of a golden calf. Right? And so Moses comes down the mountain where they're worshiping this idol and what does he do? He, he's so upset, he smashes the tablets, right? He smashes the tablets that have God's commandments, the Ten Commandments inscribed on them. And the whole thing is just a complete disaster. Um, and so then you fast forward to Moses, uh, what Moses is doing in Exodus 33. He's going before the Lord and he's pleading that God will not abandon his people even though they have abandoned him. And God, in his mercy and his grace, he chooses not to abandon Israel. And he invites Moses back up to the mountain when gives this new set of tablets and they go through the whole thing again. In other words, God gives them a whole second chance, uh, just the grace and the mercy of God on full display. And, and that's where we pick up Exodus 34. So in the midst of all of this going on, Moses has said, God, I've seen all this happen. I've been having this conversation, your covenant relationship, your love for your people. You've given me the commands, but I, I, I want to see you. I want to encounter you, I want you to reveal yourself to me. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. God, just show yourself to me. Reveal yourself to me. That's what Moses says. He says, I want to know who you are. I want to see you. I want to understand your heart. And in Exodus 34, verse 6, this is God's incredible answer to that request. This is what God says. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed these words. The Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, what I want to focus on is what lies at the heart of this passage. So this is God revealing himself. And what he does is twice here, when he's revealing himself to Moses, twice he describes himself in terms of love, his steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now, we talked about steadfast love last week. And if you missed last week, I encourage you to go back because we really kind of pressed in on the steadfastness, the permanence and the commitment of God. But this week, I want to look at some different aspects of God's love that I think are revealed here. And so I want to give you three observations about God's love and his heart. And so if you want to write these down, here's the first. God, God is the author and source of divine love. God is the author and source of divine love. It's interesting, this phrase in verse 6, abounding, abounding in steadfast love. You know, it's only God is spoken of this way in the scriptures. 
In other words, no human being is ever described as abounding in love. Only God abounds in love. It's telling us something very unique, in other words, about the heart of God. To abound, uh, if you look at this in the Hebrew, the root of this, actually it's, it's, it's rooted in this idea of a downpour, a downpour of rain, just pouring out and pouring out, relentlessly pouring from the sky, this downpour of love from the Lord. And that's the point that God wants to make here. So Moses, look, my love, it just, it never runs out. It pours forth and it pours forth and it pours forth and it never ever runs out. We run out. (laughs) We run out of love all the time. We, We can love, but it doesn't emanate from us, right? It doesn't come from, I mean, just think through your week, right? Think about those moments you didn't just emanate love. Your supply ran out, right? But God is described as this endless spring of love. We're like Deer Park water bottles, right? We get filled up. We're not spring. We're conduits. We get filled, but we have to be refilled. We're not the source of love. John, in his gospel, I'm sorry, in his epistle, in 1 John, he says this. He says, beloved, let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born out of God. We're always in this posture of needing to receive love, both for ourselves and for others. And so that's the first point. God, God, he's the source of love. I would go so far as to say any true love in the world, its source is ultimately the Lord. I don't care where or who you encounter in, it is God who is the only source of love in his creation. So that's the first one. Second thing is this. God's love seeks more than your happiness. It seeks your holiness. God's love seeks more, so not less than, but more than your happiness. It seeks your holiness. If, so just go back to the story in Exodus. If, if all God wanted was to make Israel happy, he could have just let them keep their golden calf. And he could have said, all right, if that's what makes you guys happy, kind of floats your boat, I'm still God, you can have the calf, we'll just be in this relationship together, you know, I had this law idea, but that's okay, we'll just kind of forget about that, and you just guys keep going. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that. He doesn't just give up on them and give them over, in other words, to their idol. In fact, the golden calf is destroyed. In fact, this is just a sad. It's really interesting how it's destroyed. It's ground up into dust, and then it's sprinkled in their water, and they have to drink it. It's just a living parable of what your idols really are. Because where does all the stuff that goes in go out? Right? You get what's happening here? This is a living parable. That's what your idols are worth. That's what the Lord is saying. That's just bonus. That's bonus. Some of y'all are like, oh, I get it. Oh, I get it. Okay. So the golden calf is destroyed, right? And Moses, he goes back up to the mountain. And there's two more tablets, just like the first. It says, just like the first, right? That he takes to the Lord, and the Lord describes him with his commands. God's giving Israel this second chance. Why? Because God's a God of mercy, and a God of compassion and grace. But, but, 
God was by no means going to throw out the standards of his holiness. Sometimes we pit holiness and grace against each other. Holiness and grace are inseparable from each other. Israel is too precious to the Lord God, too precious to let her wallow in her idolatry and her moral depravity. God's love shows grace, but never by lowering the standards. God loves you too much. He loves me too much to do that, to compromise his holiness. Now, many people today see love as nothing more than kindness. What I mean by that is it's, it's a love that's preoccupied with achieving happiness by affirming people just as they are, right? So you've heard this. I've even heard well-meaning Christians say this. Maybe I've said this at different points. God loves you just the way you are. God loves you just the way you are. And again, I think it's well-meaning, but here's the truth. The truth is God loves you too much to leave you the way you are. Big difference. His love for you is deeper than superficial kindness because he wants not only for you to be happy, but he wants you to be good. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be with him. By contrast, the way many people, again, even some Christians talk about love today would suggest that a loving God would have to say, do what you want as long as it makes you happy. Do what you want as long as it makes you happy. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, writes this. He says, there is kindness in love, but love and kindness are not coterminous. Kindness, merely as such, cares not whether its object becomes good or bad, provided only that it escapes suffering. It is for people whom we care nothing about that we demand happiness on any terms. By contrast with our friends, our lovers, our children, we are exacting and would rather see them suffer much than to be happy in contemptible and estranging modes. If God is love, he is, by definition, something more than mere kindness. He has never regarded us with contempt. He has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most relentless sense. God loves us too much to lower his holiness standards, to let us settle for fool's gold in our life. That's why he doesn't give up on us. That's why his love is written not just on tablets, but now on our hearts. Because he wants us to be holy as he is holy. To be holy is to be fully alive with God. Whatever ideas you have about being holy, being set apart for God, that's what it means. It it means that we can be fully alive with God, to live the life we were created to be, set apart with him and for him for eternity. It's deeper than mere happiness. It knows the joy of delighting from the depths of your heart and that which is true and good and beautiful. It's living in the truth that God loves you enough to want more than your happiness. He wants your holiness. So God's the author and source of divine love. God's love seeks more than your happiness. It seeks your holiness. And then the third, God loves, uh, God's love works for your well-being, but it burns to win your heart. 
A common expression of love today is to work hard for others' well-being, advocating for things like religious liberty or basic human rights. We love people when we work for their welfare and their dignity. As followers of Christ, we can affirm that. This is good. God loves to seek humanity's well-being. He loves us. In Exodus, God delivers Israel from slavery and from oppression in Egypt with the promise of placing them in a good land where they will flourish. But his love does way more than that. Before arriving in the new land, what happens? They spend decades in the wilderness. And in that time, God builds a relationship and he builds up a holy people. Why? Because he's a lover. He's a lover who longs for their hearts. He longs for their hearts. He's not just an advocate for their rights. He's the lover of their souls. In other words, God wants all of us. All of us. Exodus 34, God warns Israel not to worship false gods and false ways. And here's what's interesting. It's not primarily because of the social and moral impacts. All those, those matter. Those matter immensely to God. But he warns them against false gods and false ways because, get this, of the effect it will have on his heart. On his heart. This is what it says, 34, 14. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. He is a jealous God. What in the world does that mean? God is jealous. That can't be good. That's our, that's our inclination. Jealousy is almost a completely negative concept uh, in our minds, and I think justifiably so. But here God says, my name, my name is jealous, so no getting around it. What does he mean? This is not saying that God covets or envies. Instead, it's revealing just how deeply he loves us. God is saying that his love for Israel is not out of a sense of cool duty, but a burning desire. It's like jealousy that a husband feels rightly about his wife. It's in the context of a covenant relationship. It's exclusive. It's intimate. It's a oneness that should not be violated. It is a good and jealous love. And that's how God loves you and me, with a jealous love, with a burning desire. God's heart burns for you. I mean, just think about that. God doesn't want you just to have a nice life. He wants you to have a nice life, but he wants more than that. He wants you. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants to win your love. He wants your undivided love for him. And so whether we realize it or not, that's what we want too. God's jealous love speaks to the deepest need in our own hearts. The creature needs to be wanted by the creator. We need to be wanted by our father. I would say some of us have enjoyed being loved and wanted by our earthly fathers, and some of us have not. But here's the thing, whether we have or have not on this earth, we all need more than any earthly father can give us, than any earthly mother could give us. We need to know that God, our Father, wants us. 
He wants us. I don't know if you've ever even heard that before. I think I lived a long time with never hearing that. God loves me. Yes, God loves you. He loves you. But he wants you. He wants you. His desire is for you. He loves you. He pursues you. And maybe you've never heard that before. But it's his heart. He does. He loves you. He wants your heart. He wants to win your love. And he wants your undivided love for him. His heart burns for you. Just three three observations about God's heart. That he's the author and source of love. That his love seeks more than our happiness. It seeks our holiness. And that it works for our well-being, but it burns. It burns to win our hearts. As I'm closing, just two quick, quick thoughts. Two quick thoughts on how we can know God's love for us. The first one is this. We can know God's love for us in Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus, we encounter the love of God. I don't know if you've ever heard this good news, but God loves you, and he wants you, and he did everything to get you. He gave his own son the gospel, the good news of Jesus is that you and I were created for this life with God now and forever. And even though, like the Israelites at the base of the mountain, we've chosen other gods, we've rebelled, we've gone our own way, our hearts have turned to lesser loves, he still loves us and he hasn't given up on us. And so even though we've sinned, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that he sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross, to live a perfect life and to invite us to repent Turn away from these other gods, these other loves, and turn to our Heavenly Father who loves us and wants us to repent and receive his forgiveness. And Jesus, Jesus offers us life with him. And it's life. It is the life you're longing for. It was the life you're made for. It's what he's offering us. When you put your your trust in Jesus, he'll meet you, he'll fill you with his spirit with joy, with peace, with truth. He will be with you whatever you face in this life. He will draw you deeper into love with him. It will change you. It will change your relationships. You'll begin to love people and win people to Christ in a way you never thought imaginable because it will be who you are in Christ. Deep contentment that this world cannot take from you. Holiness that is a gift from the Holy One. You'll become the man or woman you were made to be. You will become, like we like saying around here, more like Jesus. So maybe you've done that. Maybe you haven't. I encourage you, take that step today. Put your trust in Jesus. Turn to the guy who loves you and wants you. This is the first way. We can know God's love for us in Jesus. And then just real quickly, this is something I feel like I've been learning lately. That we can know God's love for us through our dissatisfaction and restlessness. This may sound strange, um, but I think it's true. But just take it with a caveat, I think it's true. (laughs) Sometimes I think God frustrates our plans to protect us from the golden calves in our lives. I think he loves us that much. And so maybe you've been wrestling with a matter of conscience, that you want to do something, but something's holding you back, and you're kind of in this stuck place, maybe... It's a matter of chasing after something, even something good, but 
you know there's a risk that that might become the ultimate thing you're chasing after in life. Something you thought would satisfy you but just keeps coming up short and you feel it. You feel dissatisfied in your life. Maybe the frustration or disconnection you feel from God is actually his love protecting you from lower loves. It's an invitation to turn back to him and away from the things that you're being drawn to. God's not gonna give up on you. He loves you too much to give up on you. He'll not give you over to anything less. He's a jealous God who loves you and pursues you. I hope that encourages you. I want you to hear God loves you and he wants you and he wants life with you and life in him, a holy life in Christ.